Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161AA49, Christian Conciliatory Service, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 151, July 17, 1987. We have with us this evening and Otto and I are looking forward to continuing our conversation with him, Mr. Laurie Eck. Mr. Eck is the man who started the Christian Conciliation Service first in New Mexico and subsequently in a number of other states. A number of you are familiar with his work, I know, both because of contacts with the service and also because in our special double issue 1982-83 of the Journal of Christian Reconstruction volume 9 Symposium on Christian Reconstruction in the Western World Today we have three pages of an article from the Albuquerque Tribune uh, about Laurie Eck and his work. The Christian Conciliation Service in Albuquerque is recognized legally by the uh, state and its decisions are binding. Of course, in various ways, the same thing is true across country. We're very happy to have you with us this evening, Laurie. And uh, we look forward to many more such sessions together. Would you like to sketch broadly something of the nature of the Christian Conciliation uh, Service, the kind of work you do, and where you are active now? Well, the nature of the service basically is an attempt to be faithful to the biblical mandate that Christians not sue their brother in secular court, but instead take their disputes to the church following the procedure that Jesus outlined in Matthew 18, in such a way that not only can the conflict be resolved in a way that's really consistent with God's law and his principles of justice, but that the parties can have their relationship reconciled and, and really see that justice is done and that an opportunity for ministry, which a conflict represents, is taken advantage of. And so I guess you might characterize the ministry as a ministry of equipping those wise men in the church who have authority, who have recognized capacity as reconcilers and peacemakers to uh, exercise those particular gifts and to really see restored to the church what has been a traditional responsibility of the body of Christ, and that is to resolve conflict with, within the church would and to do call, it. Would you call these Christian courts? I, I think you would, but with perhaps the caveat that sometimes the uh, medieval ecclesiastic courts carry with them somewhat of a negative, very legalistic, harsh, a vindictive kind of connotation. Well, course. they were legal courts of the day, but they were part of the state apparatus, too, were they not? They were, and they, they, they were recognized uh, varying degrees by the state. Um, of course, we're in a somewhat different situation today, but there, there were obvious abuses at times where, where many times the individuals in charge of those courts became uh, fairly legalistic, uh, not really looking to prayer, looking to formulas and, and uh, you know, kind of set procedures for resolving disputes that uh, perhaps didn't do full biblical justice. But I guess you would really call it a Christian alternative to the secular court system, uh, a system that focuses, first of all, in trying to bring parties into voluntary agreement through uh, principles of mediation or conciliation. Now that's as distinguished from 
what we might call arbitration, where the panel of Christians would actually render a decision that would be legally binding and that might award various kinds of relief from uh, restitution to other kinds of relief that a secular court couldn't award. Well, does your conciliation service conduct these arbitrations and hand down these judgments? The basic principle of who does it, in, in a sense, is to try to encourage local church fellowships to identify a panel of lay people, if you will. Selected for the purpose. Selected for the purpose. And selected perhaps in some different ways than regular secular mediators or arbitrators might be selected. Mm -hmm. In other words, perhaps one of the biblical principles of a good mediator is not one who is totally impartial, detached, and in a sense neutral. But Jesus is the model of our mediator, and of course he was part of the Godhead, part of the Trinity, and became incarnate, very close and intimate with the sinful men that he was trying to reconcile to the Father. So many times a good mediator, a good arbitrator, is one who perhaps has a very close personal relationship with both of the parties to the dispute. And depending on the nature of the dispute, is hopefully one who has not only the spiritual maturity, but perhaps the technical expertise in in medicine or construction or uh, marital relations or whatever the dispute might involve. In the subject, in other words. In the subject area. And, and uh, taken from the community of the disputants, but not, taken, not an outsider brought in. That's right. Uh, taken from the local church fellowship and uh, taken generally as one who is recognized as as a man of wisdom and spiritual maturity by the leadership of the church. Very, very often, perhaps not the, you know, the principal not preacher. Not necessarily the minister. Not necessarily, uh, but very often a person who um, is one of recognized wisdom, who hears the Lord. An elder, who, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, also someone who has to live with this decision because uh, he's a part of the same community. And he's not leaving. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What brought you to this? Your background is your parents were both professors. You uh, went to Harvard Law School. You took some work in uh, medical school in order to have training in that field in relationship to legal practice. What brought you to a Christian conciliation service, applying law in this area. Well, I guess as, as an attorney who was a church member and perhaps fairly religious, but not a Christian, I began to be a little bit frustrated with kind of satisfaction of practicing law with the traditional tools and manner and approaches that I learned in law school. I began to see that same clients returning with different conflicts that were manifestations of what appeared to be deeper spiritual needs, uh, problems with unforgiveness and greed and bitterness and resentment, and really finding that I was incapable of ministering to those needs or resolving in a permanent way the underlying root causes of the conflict. And, of course, found myself involved as a trial lawyer, uh, primarily suing medical doctors for malpractice in, a, in an arena where relationships were not healed, where they were, in fact, alienated, people were polarized, and that uh, uh, it became, after a while, not too intellectually challenging and not very rewarding, except financially. And then I began to see, I guess, in my own life that despite a lot of intellectual training and a lot of skills as a trial lawyer, that uh, some very important relationships in my own life with my wife and children began to fall apart. I, after seven or eight years of very successful practice, making a lot of money and having positions of prestige in the bar association and trial lawyers and teaching positions, that uh, I had a wife who filed for divorce and who left and had no intention of returning. 
and no desire to be reconciled. And I spent the next uh, year in a mental institution, in a couple of jails, in uh, some situations where my own personal life really was in shambles, and began to seek some answers and found that a lot of the psychiatry, a lot of the psychology that I'd studied didn't provide relief. I found that they did have some diagnosis of the problem in terms of saying that I had some guilt, but uh, basically indicated it was guilt that was in my mind, mental, made-up guilt. In other words, they didn't recognize actual guilt or repentance. Or sin. Or sin. Well, uh, my understanding in a rough sort of way is that psychiatry fairly rapidly became an anti-Christian substitute. Well, of course, you, you see in studying Rogers or Freud or Skinner that they start with a worldview of who is man and how do people yeah. change. And, and basically every psychological theory represents all of the elements of the theology. And, and a very bad theology from the standpoint of seeing permanent change. And the, I guess the thing that was an encouragement to me was that after what I suppose is a fairly typical situation in American society today where people have given up hope on relationships, they have tried counseling, they don't love this other person, yes. uh, they don't want to be reconciled, they don't want any more counseling, they don't want anything but kind of to peacefully leave a very uh, frustrating relationship and that was exactly the situation my wife was in and I was in and yet uh, it was fortunate that the Lord brought into our life a number of individuals who really challenged us with the biblical standards God's standards of his hatred of divorce even in cases where it might be permissive that it is never God's will that people divorce and began to really challenge us with the vows that we had made to each other and to really show us that the God that could raise Jesus from the dead could certainly uh, resurrect this relationship and I guess I was kind of challenged with the idea of and my wife too was perhaps the basic issue was did we believe in the resurrection and my wife, who has always been a committed Christian, um, began to reflect on the fact that if she did believe in the resurrection, that Jesus, that God the Father, could certainly breathe life into what had become a very dead relationship. And he did. And I, I guess when I began to see the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, to, to start to reconstruct and to rebuild uh, totally fractured relationships, in a way that problems could be handled and resolved, uh, I became excited with the potential that uh, you know existed in the legal arena where so many people had given up hope on partnerships and marriages and, and relationships with other Christians to the point of suing them for separation, divorce, or whatever. Well, you had a complete conversion. Well... You know, I suspect if you were to ask my wife, she would say, the Lord is still working on me, Otto. <laughs> well, but, uh, well, that's, uh, <laughs> that follows. Uh, that's no surprise. Uh, you know, I've often felt that uh, God's army really could have done better uh, than to pull me in as a private. But I think it's fascinating that your conversion... Uh, you began to apply your conversion in your profession. And I think this is very unusual because most people convert and join a church and let the minister tell them how to uh, function and so forth from there on. But they don't always apply it in their vocation. When I, when I became a Christian, I, I guess my first thought when I really saw the... Uh, the, the wisdom in God's word and and began to read the scriptures and take them seriously was you know I've got to go to seminary and become a pastor but well, I began to read the scriptures and see the, the mandate to stay in the field 
where you were when you were called. And I I began to read, one of the things that really, I guess, convicted me was, and sometimes perhaps you take scriptures not directly in the context in which they were intended, but I was reading the book of Titus as I was asking God these questions. And, of course, Titus had been left there in Crete among some pretty pagan, idolatrous kind of people. And as I was asking the Lord to sort of remove me from my colleagues in the legal profession who haven't had the best reputation for, you know, uh, being well, spiritual. Uh, like shark. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> we all know the joke about that, but, you know, the professional courtesy one. But um, <laughs> the, uh, the Lord, you know, Paul wrote to Titus and said, Titus, I left you there in Crete so that you could set in order those things that were not in order. And I began to see that as I read through the scriptures and the very clear biblical mandate that Jesus gave to resolve legal conflict within the church, when I began to see that the only time that Jesus really even mentioned the church in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, he was talking about the authority and the responsibility that he gave to the church to deal with conflict and uh, and basically saying the gates, which are kind of representative of the courts of hell, shall not prevail against the authority of the church. I, I guess, was naive enough to take that seriously and began to meet with a number of other Christian lawyers. And as we studied... 1 Corinthians 6 and Matthew 18 and saw that so much of the New Testament dealt with the resolution and reconciliation of conflict, we began to call together church leaders in the city. And it was interesting that Where the, was this? this was in Albuquerque. In Albuquerque, um, 350,000, so it's not a no, it's a good small city. city. And it was a city where, interestingly, the despite... Uh, theological differences on many issues. We had uh, pastors from all of the mainline churches, the charismatic, evangelical, faith, fundamental, Bible churches, come together, and in in fact, uh, come together not only individually, but through their kind of separate uh, pastor fellowships, which included the New Mexico Conference of Churches, the Pentecostal Pastors, the Black Ministerial Alliance, the Spanish Ministerial Alliance, the Evangelical Ministerial Alliance. This probably uh, reflects the fact that they were all these uh, clerics were inundated with personal problems uh, in their <laughs> congregations if they yeah, couldn't unravel. <laughs> right. Well, of right. course, the typical answer, of course, was uh, nobody likes to biblically intervene in conflict. It isn't fun. And of course, they're in, in a sense, the, the model of a mediator is the Jesus model. And it's a model of laying down your life. And it's a model that, if you take a look at the way that Jesus reconciled between God and man as mediator, you know, he was in a situation where the party who was the mediator ended up paying the debt that he didn't owe and ended up taking upon himself the abuse, physical and and verbal and legal, that was due to us. And that's a very different model than a worldly model of mediation or conciliation. And uh, pastors often try to avoid conflict. In fact, we found, interestingly enough, that as we surveyed pastors who said, you know, this is great, it's biblically sound, theologically sound to resolve conflict with the church. Reconciliation is a major responsibility of the church, but we've been lucky here at uh, our particular fellowship because we really haven't had much. We don't have any problems. But as we went in and did surveys, actual uh, anonymous surveys, and asked members of that congregation about occasions in which they had hired lawyers to sue other people or been involved in lawsuits in the last two years, we found that pastor, and how many times they told the pastor, we found that the pastors, even in small, supposedly intimate fellowships, actually knew only about less than 5% of the legal disputes. 
people didn't consider that to be any of the church's business. And in fact, there were 8,000 lawsuits each year in the city of Albuquerque that had church members on both sides, that 16,000 parties, and they were spending, according to our survey, between 15 and $1,600 each for legal fees yeah. to sue their brother. Right. And so that was like $24 million of money. And, and I, I guess I consider conflict between Christians to be the property of the church. In other words, oh, it, yeah. it, we, people talk about, well, I'm going to be a good yeah. steward of, of this money or this physical property, but we also have to be a good steward of our conflicts. And the, the stewardship means that we can be either a good witness or a bad witness by the way that we handle them. And I, you know, for example, see a Christian say, well, I can't give this $5,000 to my brother because I don't really owe it to him, and uh, I could give it to uh, God's work, when in fact, if he could reconcile a relationship by perhaps paying with money a debt that he didn't owe, it might be a kind of stewardship in terms of reconciling a relationship and bringing a person to the Lord that might be more important than uh, that financial gift to, to the church. I mean, there, there's a matter here that many times Christians don't consider. Well, a sad fact today is that too many churches don't want conflict. That is, they will not recognize or uh, seek to include people who have conflicts. Let me cite one instance. A very, very fine Christian woman, two small boys, whose father was an outstanding Christian leader, married uh, a young man from a prominent church family who was outwardly of the faith, but actually was just conventional, not converted. And he ran off with another woman, came across the country with her to California, uh, left her for another, and then left her for another, and in the process uh, got a quickie, at least one quickie divorce, and remarried and divorced and so on. And uh, also was involved in misappropriation of funds so that there was a warrant out from him. He'd uh, gotten $10,000 from one widow. At any rate, uh, an attorney, a, a good friend, told this young woman, you had better go to a local court and get a divorce because with what he's doing, he can come and take the house away mm -hmm. from you. And it was your money and your father's money, but given the laws of this state, you can be put out in the street at any time. Mm -hmm. And besides, he's married and remarried, and uh, uh, there is no marriage. Well, she did get a divorce. And uh, subsequently, she moved to, to another part of the city. She sold the home. It was much too large. And she was working to support uh, her two sons in Christian school. And at the church she went, a large one that professed to believe the Bible from cover to cover, the pastor told her she was not welcome. He said, you have a problem. And we don't like people with problems. Now, this is why your work, I believe, is so important, because you're facing up to problems. You're asking churches to face up to them, when too often they don't like problems because if you try to resolve a problem, you might offend somebody, and it's better to sweep them under the carpet. Well, one of the policies that we've had is basically in any conflict where people are members of churches, we really insist that some representative from that church participate in the proceedings. And someone who uh, is designated by the leadership as a person they trust and respect. And one of, the, one of the reasons for that is that to follow through faithfully the, the Matthew 18 process of uh, resolving conflicts 
may come to a point of imposing discipline on the party who refuses to follow the decision of the church or refuses to uh, you know, abide by some agreement or covenant that they have entered into. And so it's very important that the leadership of the church that perhaps may need to take discipline lovingly for the purpose of enforcing a decision but also for bringing correction of unrighteous action has confidence in in the process and the credibility of, of what has happened and this is a very common situation churches don't uh, have not been equipped to really deal with conflict they have created all kinds of ministries of evangelism and building and teaching but perhaps the basic mandate of dealing with unreconciled relationships where we have a mandate to basically be leaving our gift at the altar and making a priority out of going to one who has something against us is of primary importance. Well, here, I think the American culture has created part of the problem. Uh, we're raised amid giant flowering euphemisms we don't, uh, from childhood onward, say what we think because when we did, uh, we got punished. And therefore, most Americans lose the ability to talk, the ability to be level and to say precisely and exactly what they think. Now, this is sort of like blindfolding everybody. We have, I'm well aware, I've, I've known marriages where the husband, uh, I, I got letters, as a matter of fact, from one of my business books. One woman wrote and said, my husband and I have been married for 25 years, and until I read your book, I never knew what he did. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a, there's a tremendous amount of men who don't tell their wives what they do. Yeah. They, uh, it isn't that they're keeping secrets, it's that they just never talk. <laughs> They just never explain themselves. They never describe anything. So you can imagine how this compounds in terms of personal relationships. When your people are not talking to one another, they don't know one another. And of course, if they don't know one another, they grow apart or they never come together. And you're, you've embarked upon, I think, a uh, masterful effort Part of the reconciliation process in terms of the mediators often involves husband-wife teams who are working together. I, you know, I, I find that having my wife, for example, present in a mediation session with another marital couple keeps me honest. In other words, uh, sometimes I practice things that I haven't preached, and if my wife is sitting there, I've got to take the log out of my own eye <laughs> before I confront these other people. And, uh, you know, there's a certain balance between uh, husband and wife where that one flesh relationship I is... Uh, wives have a way of bringing you back to earth. Yeah. <laughs> well, which book was it uh, in which this woman found out what her husband was doing? Uh, it was the uh, Raytheon book. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, in cases where I haven't had my wife involved in sessions at times, I, and I hear this one woman describing you know, why it is that she's going to leave her husband and divorce him. And, you know, many times you, you listen to these sessions and the Holy Spirit has a way of kind of convicting you of things in your own life that... And I get off the, out of that session and run to the phone and call my wife and wonder if she's still going to be there. You know, <laughs> but it, so it's you know it's a matter of, of recognizing we need to meet each other's needs and to try to be open and transparent about problems we have and to and, learn to speak and to learn to speak. Yeah. Now that's a difficult thing for people who have never spoken. It's true. It's almost like an open confession. Yes. I recall one of the most wonderful things I ever heard was in uh, calling once on an uh, elderly couple, Scottish, and the wife remarked and her husband seconded her. Uh, she said, we are not only 
man and wife, we're very good friends. We enjoy talking uh, endlessly with one another. Which should be which should be the common state. Yes. Well, that's what reconciliation is about. You know, we, we've lost a concept of friendship. And you talk about reconciliation, it's basically making enemies into friends. And it's interesting, uh, kind of in a sense, you see how few friends many Christians have. Uh, oh, most, you know, people, it's, um, most Americans today have very few friends. Laurie, uh, earlier in the day, you made a very important observation, one among quite a number of very important observations, but one I think is very telling in this context. You called attention to the fact that instead of being God-centered, Christ-centered, the church today is consumer-oriented. Do you want to uh, expound more on that? Well, I think the general observation that I've seen in trying to develop conciliation ministries around the country is that very often uh, churches center in on kind of superstar pastors who really emphasize building a big church to the exclusion of building a pure church, who focus more on church growth than on discipline or discipleship, or uh, people who really are trained and instructed in the authority of God's Word. And of course what that means in terms of sort of consumer orientation is the, the general tendency of churches is to, for people to go to a church as a consumer, where if they like the product, so to speak, they stay and consume for as long as it pleases them. But if they don't like it, they leave and go down the street to some other church. And essentially what it means is the church doesn't really have much authority in their life to bring correction or discipline or instruction or produce uh, real disciples who are making a difference in the world because uh, what generally happens is that uh, if the church would ever decide to impose some discipline they would leave yeah. and the church would feel they have a right to leave and, and essentially the, the church doesn't feel that they have any more right to discipline them than a merchant would feel that they could discipline a customer and so it, it creates an atmosphere that is really totally opposed to the authority that Jesus died on the cross to restore to the church. And uh, we have basically given back the keys of the kingdom. We haven't asserted the authority and the jurisdiction uh, that uh, Christ died for. This was, I think inherent in our Constitution mm -hmm. by creating the first uh, state in the history of the world that had no religion. The uh, founding fathers, in effect, threw religion into the street for anyone to pick up and claim in the name of any practice, custom, belief, creed, or activity. Uh, the clergy of the United States were reduced to mendicancy. They had to attract a crowd. They had to beg for money. And I think it must be one of the greatest crosses for any minister to bear because he has to be a beggar. And there is no... Uh, there's no standard, there's no religious standard. Even an irreligious country like England still has an established church on the books and still pays that church a livelihood and could, the courts of England could throw out uh, the cybernetics as a false religion because they have a religious standard. There is no way that our courts can define not Scientology. Oh, Scientology, yes. yes. Well, they threw it out as a fraud. 
Well, of course, we know there's going to come a point when this world is going to realize there is not freedom of religion. And every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that, uh, like it or not, the kingdom is not a democracy. It is a dictatorship with the king, and his name is Jesus. And uh, I don't believe we're going to see that uh, it's going to be a pluralistic kingdom. And this is something where, the, kind of one of these areas where the church has bought in to the world system. Uh, we run into a lot of problems with churches who have tried to set up books of discipline and order that deal with conflict that are based on kind of democratic concepts, uh, but not biblical concepts. And this has created real problems with conflict resolution because they have created um, a 200-page a, a document at times to deal with matters that are already clearly dealt with in Scripture. Yes. That is a key point. I have had people submit to me uh, sample documents like that, and I tell them, what about the Bible? <laughs> and you can tell these documents have been drafted by attorneys. And, of course, where churches are getting into trouble now with areas of church discipline and so forth is is because they they haven't and probably couldn't without the constant assistance of a staff of attorneys follow the procedures that they themselves have created to deal with conflict or to bring discipline. So it means that you can't, if you can't follow your own procedures, you do become perhaps liable uh, for those individuals. And, um, well, tell me how the conciliation service has spread. You tell, uh, it's, a, it's a whole network now, is it not? It, it has really spread, I, I sense, through individuals in various parts of the country who have begun to really see firsthand that God's principles, God's law, uh, can really bring justice and reconciliation, that, that there cannot be real peace without applying biblical law, biblical procedures and remedies, and, and where people have had an opportunity to observe that firsthand. And we've had hundreds and hundreds of people come to Albuquerque and to the other cities and observe for a matter of weeks or months at times the system in operation. Uh, gone back with a vision of, of planting within their own fellowship or within their local church this kind of a ministry it has spread. And we, we have gone to, to a lot of cities and done training seminars and tried to really, in, in a prophetic sense I guess, really call attention to the biblical mandates and to show people that, that if we take them seriously that they will bring peace in such a way that the world will look up and take notice that we as Christians have an alternative that is restorative, that can reconcile seemingly impossible situations. Uh, we had, for example, the court system in Albuquerque adopt a formal court rule appointing the Christian Conciliation Service to give a mandatory conciliation lecture to people who wanted to get kind of a quickie, no-fault divorce. And the idea was they'd seen, despite the fact that most of the judges were not Christians, that the other alternative dispute resolution systems that were not Christ-centered could do nothing but divide up property and custody and could not really produce reconciled relationships. And, of course, these judges were overburdened with each of them having thousands of cases pending on their dockets at any given time for divorce. And coming back time and time again with uh, new husbands and new divorces and fractured families and uh, um, really seeing that apart from Jesus Christ, there is really no basis for, for peace or reconciliation. You've had a lot of cases involving money and property also. Surprisingly, uh, 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 probably 50% of the cases have been business, commercial, mm. injury kinds of cases that generally have involved 
surprisingly large sums of money, probably averaging $100,000 or more a case. I thought initially that the conciliation service might be characterized by many of the petty neighborhood barking dog debt, you know, small debt collection type of things, but um, those usually are not the ones that have been brought, and it's in a sense, they're a little bit easier to resolve because many times the, there aren't the strong feelings of bitterness and anger and resentment that have built up during marital relationships. But it's important in these areas. Pe people sometimes get the idea that the Christian solution is for people to uh, hug each other and split, <laughs> split the difference. Yeah. But you see that, that God's Word sets forth very clear standards of what appropriate levels of restitution are. And sometimes those levels are, you know, people talk about win-win uh, solutions to resolving conflict. And you begin to see that you violate God's law. And he means win. You, you know, somebody loses and somebody's got to lose. And loses big. Right. And uh, I would say the biggest problem the movement has had is that all over the country, churches will pick up this idea, but when it comes to practice, that hug and forgive idea is what prevails. They don't want to go into the problem. They don't want to resolve it. And uh, so, basically, what they're doing is to try to destroy exactly what the service is trying to uh, exactly. do to course, resolve it. I, I would say that you know, the reason I here talking to you is because I have come to see that, that the weakness of the system, you know, you, what is going to solve problems is not a system, but people who know the Word of God, who take it seriously, and that means not only the substantive principles of biblical justice, but the, the, the evidence that's appropriate, the remedies, the, the, the whole process that goes into producing True reconciliation has to be based on God's law and God's procedures. And quite frankly, within the church across America today, the leadership, the attorneys, and many of the ones that have been involved in the process simply have not been equipped with, with many of the aspects of really knowing the Word of God and knowing how to apply that in a practical sense to conflicts and and without the work that uh, Chalcedon is doing, well, uh, this, this will never be accomplished. Well, because uh, I had an interview over the Cincinnati radio this morning. I had to get up at 5.30. <laughs> uh, the radio fellow's show began at 9 o'clock Cincinnati time, which is 6 o'clock our time. And uh, the subject was our revolution. The subject mm -hmm. was that... Uh, talk I, I gave some time ago on what's happening in the United States. And of course what's underway now between Congress and the President and in many other areas and levels is the illusion that a society can live without authority and a general uprising against the idea of authority, the President's authority or anyone else's authority. And this, I suppose, is where the churches come in. One of the callers into the radio program compared the discussion to the situation of the Catholic Church, where the bishops are rising against the Vatican because they don't think the Vatican should have that much authority. And I said, well, how could you have a church in which the buck stops nowhere, in which the discussion goes around forever? Uh, which is the, sort of a whirlpool that we have reached in the political sense in the United States where no issue is ever resolved because no one is admitted to have the authority to resolve it. And here you come in with a Bible. And then, of course, if you accept the Bible, you have to accept guilt, you have to accept sin, you have to accept error, and you have to make restitution. It's <laughs> a very difficult lesson. You, you see very quickly, the problem is there has been a complete abrogation of authority on the part of the church, yes. on the part of the, the heads of families, right. on the part of government, and that, you know, there needs to be a restoration and a recognition of, of authority, and 
to, and a recognition of to have authority, you've got to be under authority. I, I began to see when I was, you know, really asking the Lord to rebuild the marriage that it was very important for me uh, to see that as a husband, uh, one of the reasons why I could complain about my wife's uh, rebelliousness was that as a husband, I wasn't submitted. I'm not talking about a dictator. I'm talking about somebody, though, who really is pastoring and watching over my soul as one who gives an account and who one who is meeting with me and I'm trying to be open and transparent and confessing problems with and beginning to see, too, that the, the people that God had put into my life as pastors and authority had come in as servants. In other words, they had come in and really made every effort to make uh, my ministry and my family successful, had been servants to me. And they had authority, not because they came in and announced it, but because of real servanthood. And, of course, I called me to, to look at relationship with my wife and began to see that um, not only had there been a good period of time when as a husband I had not been under authority and yet was asking my wife to submit, but had not modeled with her the kind of servanthood that uh, my pastors had modeled for me. And, you know, this is something that if the church, heads of family, would assume the authority that God has given them, uh, many of these problems would be resolved. The churches where people well, are truly pastored don't have this conflict. We find this going all through American life. I was astonished to discover when I joined a large corporation. Uh, the third week I was there, I fired a man who was reporting to me because I found it caught him in a lie. And he flew out right away into the chairman and said, Otto fired me, and he hasn't got the authority to fire me. He said, this isn't the way things are done here. And the chairman said, did he say that he fired you in so many words? And he said, yes. Well, then he said, there's nothing we can do. <laughs> and I didn't realize that I had broken all their policy. I had face-to-face -face fired a man because they had set up a system where there was a sort of internal mediation. He would be transferred to another department. All kinds of nonsense would go on. Uh, they would send him a telegram when he was out of town. Uh, they would do anything to keep him facing up to the facts of life. And yet, you know, if you keep a man in a job for which he's unsuited, you're doing him an injury. Well, that, that's been, a, you know, an obvious problem where people in the church, for example, who have a conflict, very typically today, if you ask them, will you submit this dispute to the most respected, wise, competent, trusted Christian who you know loves you and who, you know, uh, is uh, expert, has been your friend, many Christians will not, in that situation, even submit to anybody from the church. They would rather go down into a secular court, but yes. somebody who doesn't follow biblical principles, who they don't know, who they don't have any relationship Take with. Take their chances. And this, you know, w when you talk about discipline... By you suppose they would rather do that because it's more impersonal, and they're afraid of the exposure of what you're offering? Part, part of it is that, I suspect. Part of it is not wanting other individuals to know what's going on yeah. in their life. In fact, one of the things you commonly hear in terms of involving somebody who has been kind of a pastor to the person, or at least who they would call their pastor involving them, is they, they would not want this person to know about this kind of problem, which really indicates a basic deficiency in the relationship of the pastor, parishioner, if you mm -hmm. will. And it is too personal. Yeah. They'd yeah. rather go into a public arena with a personal problem than they would a private arena with a personal problem. But it says something very critical about who's the Lord of the person's life. When, when an individual would rather submit to an individual who is a non-Christian who constitutionally can't follow biblical uh, standards of procedure and evidence and law over the most trusted and respected Christian that he knows, and the church takes action to disfellowship or excommunicate that person, you can see 
that essentially for him to believe that he is really part of the body of Christ, he's perhaps deceiving himself oh, yes. in terms of lordship. And uh, that's not to perhaps say anything about his ultimate salvation, but is a real recognition that there are many people who frankly don't think the church has any authority to speak. It, it's like these cases where people feel their private life in terms of fornication or adultery or whatever is absolutely none of the church's business. Or anyone else say so. Yeah, and say so in, in court. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, the and, Oklahoma yeah. case, the woman was indignant. Uh, what business of the uh, churches was it that she was involved in adultery? She didn't deny the fact. She denied that the church had any right to discipline her for it. Well, and the theory has not been the falsity of the charges. It's been the invasion of their supposed privacy. Well, the, as you said before, the church has abdicated a long time ago. I wonder how long ago that well, they I, turned into uh, totally emasculated institutions. I think I can answer that. It began in the 1820s mm -hmm. when the church began and revivalism helped create it, look to a star. The star system was created. And from the early years, the stars were in trouble. One of the greatest stars of the last century, the first nationally prominent pulpit star, was Henry Ward Beecher. Well, Theodore Parker. Yes. And uh, down to someone like Jim Baker. Yeah. The star system neither generates a strong moral uh, a congregation nor does it uh, lead to a strong moral leadership. I guess the collapse of Calvinism in New England, yes. the growth of Arminianism, and the turn between 1820 and 1830, uh, probably even before that. Uh, under Jackson... You had men looking to the state for solutions rather than to the church. And uh, the answers were no longer in terms of scripture, but in terms of the state. Well, you know, this is one of the reasons that the European Christians, and they're still a remnant, at least very scholarly, have never been able to make sense out of American Christianity, which is a brand all its own. There's lots of shouting and crowds and <laughs> and money and buildings and glass cathedrals and all the rest. We, we've the created a cultural Jesus, the, kind of in our own image. Jesus and, uh, Christ Superstar. Yeah. And uh, that was... Sort of, that sort of travesty has gone as deep into the culture. But people, therefore, must really be truly converted to go to your conciliation service and go through it. I'd say that, though, how, how, have they, how have they fared, those that have gone through it? Well, the, um, I guess... One of the things you find, some people's motives initially, quite honestly, are a little bit mixed with sure. with the high cost of justice today in uh -huh. terms of spending twenty or thirty thousand dollars. Cheaper than a lawyer. So sometimes what they're expecting is for the church to come in and put its um, imprimatur of approval on an unbiblical divorce. They're looking for some quick, inexpensive way to resolve a legal problem without hiring an attorney. So to to say that. Now, now, I've got to say, we have people sign a covenant at the time they enter the process that very clearly sets forth their responsibilities and uh, the process that could very easily result in matters of discipline. And it's the kind of contract that is a very tough contract in terms of the narrow way that Jesus prescribes to deal with disputes. And many people, frankly, do feel challenged. I hope it's not manipulated, but we sometimes do tell people that you have to be fairly serious about your Christian commitment to want to follow this process. Um, and sometimes people are, are 
you know, at least challenged to want to think that they are. And frankly, there is usually one or both of the parties whose commitment is a little less than um, than the other. The other, but the Lord often opens up incredible opportunities to really witness and to teach and to minister and to heal and so even in situations where one of the parties may seem fairly insistent on thinking they want a divorce and basically don't believe they want to work toward reconciliation we carefully discern first of all whether we will get involved in the case because we obviously don't want to facilitate any type of a separation that is unbiblical but the Lord will show us many times that you know, here is a case where, where hearts can be changed and where he wants us involved simply because by being alongside of these people and praying with them and ministering to them that God will bring reconciliation. And of course it's a contagious process. It, I guess we, we get frustrated at times about the increasing levels of divorce and litigation. But the exciting counterpart of that is that when Christians begin to become reconciled it's equally as contagious they, these people who see the power of Jesus to resolve conflict and see the, the wisdom that there is in God's law, that God in, in setting forth his law is not some mean ogre spoils sport in the sky that's trying to ruin the fun in life, that, that his laws are the way to freedom and the way to peace. And as people begin to see that and see that uh, uh, although we're saved by grace, that the way to a free life is through his word, son, uh, they become excited because of a firsthand personal experience that's been more than an intellectual decision to accept the four spiritual laws or the doctrines of Christianity because they've seen the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of Jesus to, to resolve. And this this and, is exciting because this it applies, becomes... this applies in property disputes? In, in any kind of a dispute. And, and of course it's a matter of really recognizing that perhaps our role is sort of a John the Baptist role of preparing the way for the Lord, of making his path straight so that instead of being like the scribes and Pharisees, who are so surrounding the ones needing healing that they have to bring them down to the roof, our role is perhaps one of getting those obstructionists out of the way so that Jesus can get in with the word and the ministry to bring healing. And uh, How does this affect the rest of the congregation? Well, there was one thing that the congregation begins to see is that conflict is a corporate responsibility. You know, Otto, you have a debt in a business deal or have some type of an injury or incur some damage. It may be of a type that you financially, individually can't take care of. Now, a lot of times, traditionally, we've said, well, if Otto went out and, and made that debt and couldn't pay it, that's his problem. Or if he wants to forgive a guy when he could have sued him and collected the money he got to live with that stupid decision but when the congregation begins to see hey Otto is very likely to forgive and bring reconciliation if he knows he has brothers and sisters in the Lord who are going to supply him with a coat if he gives his away it's going to make it much easier for that person to make the right decision so it's one of the things that happens is people begin to see conflict as a corporate responsibility and don't view it as some isolated matter and they begin to see that each one of us is called to be a peacemaker to be a reconciler and to step in to conflicts and even conflicts particularly with those people who are very close to us because those are uh, a quick question and a quick answer because we have about two minutes left <laughs> What can people do if they're interested in exploring the possibility of uh, setting up such a service in their community? Well, I, I think there's a number of options. I, I, now I wish I could say there's some blueprint or model that applies to every city. Uh, I don't believe there is. I, I believe God has a unique plan for developing this type of a ministry within 
local churches around the country and one of the lessons we've learned is the model that has worked well in Albuquerque or Minneapolis or Chicago may not be the, the model for uh, San Francisco or Santa Rosa. So we do have, with, with the Christian Legal Society, has a national office that does supply materials. We, uh, we have in um, virtually every state uh, one or more of these conciliation services who are very willing to come and meet with local church leadership and attorneys and business people and and prayerfully discern what God is doing in the body of Christ in that city and how the ministry needs to develop and who needs to be involved with it. And it's uh, um, something that is very difficult to put into a formula. But I, I believe in reading the scriptural mandate calling together people who have a vision for what God is doing in bringing his kingdom to this earth and the authority of the church, that, that people will uh, be led in, in what is not a complex process. Uh, it involves simply identifying peacemakers who know the scriptures, who know Jesus, who are led by the Holy Spirit, who know how to minister, and there's no fancy training course, there's no quick answers to equipping people except identifying those who know the Lord and who know his word and who know how to minister. Well, our time is really virtually gone. Otto Scott and I have been visiting with Laurie Eck, who has, with his Christian Conciliation Service, created a movement which extends from coast to coast and is a major force in the dominion work of the kingdom. Thank you all for listening and thank Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.